Hi, you're listening to Nuts and Bolts, a podcast about gear and music. With some of your favorite artists, I will dive into the practicalities of how they make their work. Twisting those knobs and pushing those buttons. First thing I do when I work with feedback is a Max MSP. I make a very big limiter. <laughs> they will they like certain frequencies. Well, they don't like anything, but they they respond more linear to <laughs> certain frequencies. I'm excited to have gotten to meet Kathy van Eck. She's a composer, sound artist, and researcher whose work combines elements from performance art, electronic music, and visual arts. She focuses on composing relationships between everyday objects, human performers, and sound. Kathy teaches at the Department for Sound Arts of the University of the Arts in Bern, Switzerland. In 2017, her seminal book, Between Air and Electricity, was published, detailing how musicians have explored how to transform microphones and loudspeakers from inaudible technology into genuinely new musical instruments. I come from very classical music, originally. I started to write for instruments, conventional instruments, just because I was playing the piano, and and then... I started to study composition and in the composition department we also had a studio called Stockhausen Studio nowadays and it was a very old-fashioned studio so that's why I started to work just because it was a part of the program and I I really liked it but I remember seeing this mixing desk and thinking why are there so many faders there's just I mean, there's just louder or softer in the end. So why would you have all the other faders? So I really didn't have a clue at all <laughs> what the studio was about. <laughs> but I remember that teachers just said like, try out everything. You can't break anything. So uh, just go ahead. So I, I tried out everything. And I also remember then once during a lesson with this teacher who had said nothing can go wrong. So we were in the midst of all these old synthesizers. Suddenly we heard a loud... And there was smoke coming from one of the synthesizers. And I remember that I was only thinking, nothing can happen. <laughs> and my teacher was freaking out like, oh, we have to get someone. This is completely wrong. This was so, that, of course, something can happen. <laughs> That's my first memories of working in the studio. And then I slowly started to work a bit with Max MSP and Max MSP I, I really liked it because there I could try out things myself and I could do it on a 
uh, my own computer and um, and I also li really like to have live electronics to have something have a sound and transforming it and sending it out differently and then I went to study in Berlin and there it co continued till at a certain point I realized I'm really interested in mainly optics and electronic sound and their combinations and I I don't want to write for instruments anymore so I think I really decided not to write for instruments anymore in 2010 and I started studying composition in 97 so it was a very long process. Wow, yeah. <laughs> You'll remember Max MSP from our episodes with Jessica Ekomane and Andrea Parkins. This programming software by the company Cycling74 offers seemingly unlimited possibilities. Instead of writing out the whole programming like you would in Super Collider, you chain together so-called objects in a way that seems kind of in between programming and a modular way of working. The first time I saw Max MSP uh, was in 98 during a summer course. And there were two teachers, Johannes Kretz and Jacopo Baboni Skilingi, and they just said like, jump into this and do this and oh, you can do nice things. And they gave lessons and they just showed us Max patches. And it, so it was, it was quite an, an easy start because during that summer course, we just had lessons every day with them. So there was no, uh, wh what usually happens when you start with Max MSP is that you, you um, have a lesson, then you go home and then suddenly it's like, oh, wait, this doesn't work anymore. And then you have to wait a week. And that's not good because Maximus speed to start, it's much better to do it every day. So you, you really get into the program and you have someone to help you. During that summer course, it was very good. In two weeks, I went from not working with Maximus P at all to a piece for clarinet and Maximus P. And then I came back to school and I think I did some Max MSP lessons at the Sonology department with Paul Burke actually. At that time I didn't have Max MSP on my computer, I didn't, um, so it, it, then the slow journey of, of getting to know it, the program and really being able to program without help. So also learning Max MSP took me quite some time because 98 was the first time and I started to feel really confident programming in, in Max MSP I think around 2004, 2005. It could have gone much, much quicker, but I didn't, in 98, I, I also, I wasn't that much interested yet in, in, it wasn't like love on first sight, like, oh, I just want to do maximum speed. I was just like, oh, this is nice. But it was one of the many opportunities. And then later on, it beca became more and more. And um, th there are so many things you can do, so many different things. There's, for example, there's also the whole video part with Jitter. Well, my knowledge of Jitter is very, very small. I can do just a few things, which uh, I mainly use for lessons uh, when I'm teaching. But otherwise, I'm never working with Jitter because that's not my part. So there are many, so many different things that... Um, you don't have to know the whole program because the whole program would be everything you can do with Maximus P and so many people are doing so many different yeah. things with it. I real wh What I realized what I can do with Maximus P quite easily is having interaction, uh, creating interaction between musicians uh, and objects and then later on for my own performances also between sound and um between when I touch something or when I use senses. So that's why Maxim SP um, became important. And then I also started to learn pure data, and which is very similar and which was, of course, much easier to learn than because I knew what was possible in, in Maxim SP and Maxim SP is still my 
the software I, I would say I, I use the most, but when I program in pure data, I'm, I just feel much more like, oh, this is possible in MaxMSP, so I'm quite sure you can do that in pure data. Beckoning the question, how are MaxMSP and pure data different from one another? MaxMSP is really a commercial software and pure data is open source. First of all, it's for free, which is really cool. So you can use it for free. And then uh, because it's open source and it also runs on uh, other platforms than um, Mac or Windows, you can also install it, for example, on a Raspberry Pi or on a mobile phone. So I can have a very cheap computer, which can do everything more or less everything of course the processor of a raspberry pi is not as a common laptop computer but it can really do a lot and i can use it for installations and the raspberry pi is very small then i have pure data running on the raspberry pi and i can make an installation with that the raspberry pi is a series of programmable single board computers they can be very small and therefore handy for particular purposes they can also be expanded with add-ons like cameras or displays and so on. I made one installation with Raspberry Pi and there I also started with, oh, this is going to be really small, but then <laughs> it ended up with, because then I needed not only Raspberry Pi, but also Arduino for the sensors. And um, then I needed some, ah, for the fans, I also needed some extra uh, plug. So in the end, it was quite a big case, I have to say. But still, it, it had to stay outside. And it was also in an exhibition for months. And it, of course, with the Raspberry Pi, that's much easier than with a computer. You also just have to plug it in and then it does everything by itself. So then you have so many options. Each of these are a universe on its own. So how do you orientate yourself when you make a piece? And how do you access the often super specific information that you need within that particular program or piece of gear? When I start a, a piece, I just start with the idea and then I look what do I need. And then I, I look at what kind of te technology do I need. For example, with the mobile phone, I, I was like, I want to do a piece with sensors. And then I realized, wait, in a mobile phone, there is a sensor. The sensor is in the phone to see how you, how you have your, your screen. So if you have your mobile phone upright, the screen turns with you. And this sensor, the data of this sensor, I like to use it to track my gestures, to track my movements. And um, then I looked at what kind of programs are there. Of course, someone has made a program. Uh, one of the programs I like a lot because there you can put pure data on your iPhone is uh, PD Party by Dan Wilcox. He's just an artist who decided, oh, I need this. And he made this program and he updates it regularly. He has on his website a very clear description of how to install the program and in in this case i think i once had a problem because i had a too old iphone so and then i just wrote him a message and i wrote him help what do i have to do and uh, then he wrote back immediately like, oh yeah that's true that's uh, it doesn't work for this old iphone but i still have the old program i think he sent it to me or something like that and then with the Raspberry Pi, there's of course a huge community of Raspberry Pi users who do completely different things than music. She makes it sound so easy, but I often get completely lost in those kind of spaces. There's way too much information. It's totally chaotic. Often it's not for the exact application that I want to use it for. I get lost too when I, when I um, in the sense that, yes, there's a lot of information, 
and uh, there are a lot of ways to do things. One of the things I do is talk a lot about with other people who do similar stuff. So I ask them, oh, you are also using uh, uh, Raspberry Pi or you are also using an Arduino. How, how is this problem for you or how did you solve this? Because I, I still think this, this one-on-one knowledge is sometimes when they understand what your problem is and you know each other, then you're, it's quicker with information. But it's true. I, I do get lost. And there are just with this kind of, especially the cheap technology, there's so many different ways to do it. I, I usually do a combination of reading some books in depth where I know, okay, here there's some basics. I had a book... I think it's called something like making music with phones or something like that. And I also, for example, there's this book, Handmade Electronic Music by Nicholas Collins, which really helped me to dive into electronics. And what is so nice about that book is it's giving you a lot of confidence, like do it like this and do it like this. And now you're going to solder. Now you're going to put something together. And it, it's written in a, a very a way which makes you confident, but also which makes clear there's not one way to do this right. There are many ways to do this right. So there are many ways to try out the stuff. And if it sounds good, then it's good. I have this one piece when I was pregnant and I wanted to do something with the baby heartbeats and my heartbeats. That was one of the pieces where I then realized, oh, I just have to use these very low-fee or cheap devices which you can buy when you're pregnant to make the heartbeat of your baby audible. Because that's just what's what's functioning best. I, I also tried more expensive microphones and all kinds of stuff. And then I realized, yes, they're, they're more expensive and they're more professional. But they're not going to uh, make the sound I want to use. And um, they, they're also not real microphones. It's just, I think they, they measure the heartbeat and they sonify it so they make the heartbeat audible and i use them and they just have a very small mini jack output that was the more the problem that it was such a cheap small output and i really had to uh, there was sometimes nearly losing the connections i wondered what other types of gear touched kathy's heart over the years what, what i think brought me uh, really, when I started to use it, I was really like, oh, wow, this is something I like. It's a contact microphone, which is something very simple. And uh, what I like so much about the contact microphone is that you can put it in an object and then you can amplify this object or you can use the sound of the object, transform the sound in the computer, transpose it or do whatever you want. And it won't pick up anything else. Because one of the things with, with a normal microphone is, of course, that if there's a loud sound and not sound it will pick it up as well but the contact microphone is the sound it amplifies in the end it just amplifies the vibrations of the object itself it really sounds differently so when i start to amplify an object with a micro contact microphone it can be very surprising and it also still has a kind of magical like oh wow it sounds like this now it's very simple it's also very cheap but i still like it a lot to use that Regular contact mics are made from piezo discs, made of a thin piezoelectric ceramic round glued to a thin brass or alloy metal disc. This center disc is positively charged, while the brass disc is negatively charged by vibrations in a touching surface. Check out season three episode with Maya Ratcha for more on DIY soldering of contact mics. However, Recently, I used this AKG C411 contact mic, 
which can, for example, be used to amplify oud or acoustic guitar, and these consist of a pre-polarized condenser transducer mic. If you have an AKG contact microphone, it sounds different than if you solder one with a piezo disc. Um, but my experience is also, for example, I have a piece with music stands where I use the feedback through the music stands with um, contact microphones and very small loudspeakers. When I made that piece, I just made it with, well, I had soldered contact microphones and I had cheap loudspeakers, so I made the piece and I was like, okay, yes, this sounds nice. What I did not realize then is that it was only going to sound nice with this equipment. <laughs> and, and not because later on I thought, oh, yeah, I have these nice AKG C411 microphones. And then I realized they're much more linear in their frequency response. So they also pick up more high frequencies and more low frequencies, which is nice if you want to amplify a sound, but not nice for this feedback sound because the feedback sound became much, it became extremely high. And I was like, oh, I, this is really not how it should sound. So I, I suddenly had to add filters in the computer. And, then, and it's still, uh, when I do the piece now, I always use this very cheap piezo disc contact microphones and never the AKG. Also the same for the loudspeakers. The loudspeakers are very small and they sound in a specific way because of course certain frequencies they just can't reproduce. They will they like certain frequencies. Well they don't like anything, but they, they respond more linear to <laughs> certain frequencies. So also with the loudspeakers I really then had to look for right ones. They're not tactile transducers, they're magnets. The magnet of the um, loudspeaker is attached to the music stand and that transmits the vibration of the loudspeaker through the music stand. So the music stand is just vibrating and then the, the contact microphone picks up the vib these vibration and send it back to the loudspeaker. Instead of the air, which we normally have between microphone and loudspeaker when we have feedback, um, there it's a music stand which is in between. So that's also when I take the loudspeaker away, the feedback quits and then I put it again and then you hear feedback again. Speaking of tactile transducers, however, as Nicholas Collins notes in his book Handmade Electronic Music, they consist of the guts of a loudspeaker, a magnet and a coil of wire. Instead of the paper cone, the coil is attached to a socket, which you can bolt to a surface. It could supposedly turn your wall into a speaker, were it not that your wall or your car frame or whatever other object you want to bolt it to has its own idiosyncratic frequency response and quirky resonances. I started to use them for the first time in the tin can pieces and it was because I was by accident. I, I got them, I think, somewhere online. I found them and I, I bought them in the way quite cheap and quite heavy. Normally you attach them to a couch and you can really feel the, um, then if you play a computer game, I think then you can feel the shooting and things like that. I think that's what people use them for. I don't know exactly. I think also in cars, people use them to he feel the beat better of the music or something like that. Um, but with the tin cans, what I liked was that if I attach a tra transducer to the tin cans, the tin cans are not really uh, attached solidly to the transducer, so they can still vibrate. And 
one of the things I realized is that at certain frequencies, they will also move a bit. So the thing can start to move a bit because the um, transducers are not attached firmly to something. They're just laying on the floor and they're a bit unstable. And that's also what I like then. There's an input sound coming from the, from the transducer, but then it gets colored due to the tin can and how the tin can resonates on the transducer. to say in the beginning I was mainly interested in amplifying sounds and, and using contact microphones, using special loudspeakers like attaching transducers to wood and um, then I spoke with Paul Kranen he said like oh let's do a feedback project and we had we met in a small group with three people Juan Lachlau, Paul Kranen and me and we did a feedback project and I was in the beginning I was quite skeptical and feedback like ah but what can i do with that and then i started a piece called wings there are many feedback pieces where um and many very nice pieces where feedback is just it's about um something is started and the feedback can choose their own frequencies and in my piece it's much more about controlling the feedback with with the white shields and also using the feedback really as a musical material so i it's not about having a process and having it going on it's it's much more a choreography with sound and having a kind of interaction between sound and space and the choreography itself so that that was developed with them uh, and that's that's how it started and with feedback i also realized that i was interested not so much in this a loud feedback sound but in a very subtle feedback sound so I, the first thing i do when i work with feedback is in max msp i make a very big limiter <laughs> It's it not even such a big, but it's just a limiter. And I also use in, in Max MSP, there's a five channel compressor. So you divide the spectrum in five different uh, ranges. So you have the low frequencies, the, uh, this compressor. I use it, of course, completely wrong. I don't use it for what it's meant. Yeah, it's a multiband compressor. Yeah, so this multiband compressor, I use it to control the feedback because I really like it to be able then to really say like, okay, the, the very high frequencies, I don't want any of them or nearly no high, very high frequencies, nearly no very low frequencies. And the other ones are really pushed and that made it much easier for me to work with the feedback. I always use a uh, delay and sometimes uh, some reverb on, on the feedback, but the delay, one of the nice things about the delay is that it, what it does, it, um, if you delay a feedback signal, it is virtually taking the microphone and the loudspeaker further apart than it is. Because if you look at it, it takes more time due to the delay in the computer for the microphone signal 
to go to the loudspeaker signal. Uh, uh, this is just virtually, but the good thing is you can still have a high level. So in a way you're taking them further apart, but with a higher level. So feedback is easier and you can have it at lower pitches. I often even use several delay lines on top of them. It's easier also to keep the feedback alive with a small delay line. When working with electroacoustic feedback, the space in which it takes place is part of the instrument due to how it affects all the other elements involved. The shape, size and resonance frequencies of a room, or room modes as they're called, will differ from performance space to performance space. So I wondered whether Kathy used any measures to deal with those differences or accepted them as a chance factor in the composition. I am often trying it out in the room and then I, I change a bit the the frequencies when I remark, oh, this, this is really loud here. So then I do a bit of uh, not even direct EQing, but I, I use different filters for that. So I, ch I, I change the, fr the frequency response a bit. In that case, the microphones and the, and the loudspeaker are pointing to each other and they are just around three meter distance and the room is much bigger. So in the end, the room is influencing the piece, but most, most times in such a way that I think it's okay and it can be like that. So I don't need to change a lot in the room. Now we've discussed a number of really interesting concepts, but how does one actually develop a piece of this sort? When I'm making a piece, I often write down what are the different elements and how can they influence each other. I have, for example, a piece which is very simple technology-wise in the sense that there's a iPhone under every chair and there are three chairs. And in fact, the whole piece is just about is a chair moving or not? And when I started the piece, I was like, oh, well, that's an easy system. But then I realized... Oh, I really have to notate down what the different possibilities are. Because of course, there's just, is the chair moving or not? But there are three chairs. So that can also be which one of these chairs is moving. And then also, are two chairs moving together or are three chairs moving at the same time? How long are they moving, etc. So I started to draw that and also d draw the different positions of the chairs. So this is with the Max MSP patch. And I use a, an app called Gear OS. C from uh, Gyroscope OSC. So it, it sends just the data of the iPhone. There's no PD patch on the iPhone in this case, but it sends the data directly to Max MSP. And there, um, Max MSP uses it for whatever I have programmed it. For example, in the beginning, every time I um, pick up a chair, it records sound of my footsteps. And then when I put it down again, it plays that sound and it starts to play that sound. And then I pick up another chair, it records the sound I'm making, and then I put it down again. So that's uh, um, something where I realize when I write it down and when I draw how I think, what technology I have, then I, I also get other ideas of what to do with it.
But th that's one of the reasons why I always, I try to start with an idea and try to start, okay, what do I want to do? For example, the chair pieces in the very beginning, I thought I was going to use contact microphones and I threw them out because then I realized I the ideas I have, I can't do them with contact microphones. I need sensors and then I use the iPhones for the sensors. I work a lot with, with, with software, so to say, and especially with Maxim SP and Pure Data. But the moment I program something, even if it's it's super open, I can do really a lot of different things in MaxMSP and also connect. That's also one of the things why I like it and why um, I also work with, with uh, Ableton Live or with Reaper and before with Pro Tools and Logic. But one of the nice things of MaxMSP is for me, because I need this interaction with sensors or with, with live electronics, that you I can combine different stuff and say, okay, now I, I just need a transposer but just for this and then I can use something else where I just uh, use a little bit of a sampler but a, a very specific sampler so that's very nice but the moment I've programmed it it's there of course and then it's it becomes a box again where I'm, okay now there's this and I just can't change it immediately and especially my form of working it's very composed in the sense the the pieces have a beginning and an end and a development in between and and that they're really played there's nothing which is improvised in like i can't say suddenly like oh uh, let's uh, make a nice melody here because that's not how they are made if if you think of the chairs and with just are they carry it around or not that's the main action i can do and everything else is happening because the computer knows okay now she's carrying this chair for the third time so let's go to the next uh, preset because that's what i programmed what i do i often also feel that it's not it's not really music it's kind of a sound i often call it performative sound art because then i feel like yeah that, that's for me what it is it's not it's not music in the sense that that i can uh, react musically, how you would react in a musical ensemble.
Thanks to our guest, Kathy van Eck. This episode was edited and mixed by yours truly, Jessica Slichter. Go to nutsandbolts.space, our very own website, now up, to stay up to date about all our projects and to become a member of our associations. This episode was made possible with support by Norsk Kulturfond. Thank you for listening to Nuts and Bolts podcast and stay tuned for next episode. <laughs>